right, well now for something and someone completely different. <laughs> My paper today was motivated by the desire to consider at a very local level the borders and boundaries against which one iteration of cosmopolitanism arises. I wanted to think about the ways that claims of strident nat nationalism were used in Fantasy Club Britain to shore up one's sense of or representation of normative morality, heteronormative sexuality, or to stave off the threat of homosexual desire via the rejection of the geographically and sexually foreign other or otherness. How, in other words, might the virulent anti-cosmopolitanism establish, reinforce, or underscore a cosmopolitan ideal? These questions were motivated by my encounter with the singular writer, poet, and editor, T.W.H. Crosland, and I recognize that these lines of inquiry are at their base hopeful, perhaps blindly optimistic, uh, in light of the Donald Trump juggernaut in particular, the risk of airing racist, xenophobic, homophobic invective is only too real. I recognize that. Uh, to be sure, Crosland's rejection of the cosmopolitan subject shored up his own nationalistic fervor, uh, but per by personally exploiting the relative sexual freedom afforded on the continent, even as he publicly railed against it, Crosland behave Crosland's behavior demonstrated the limitations of the hidebound, nominally English propriety he endorsed. To the extent that his public invective and even testimony in the many lawsuits that he brought before the court distilled the aesthetic and moral narrow-mindedness of the rejection of cosmopolitanism, uh, and to the degree that his behavior drew public rejection, they might very well have promoted some of the values that Crosland so sensibly loathed. Thomas William Hodgson Crosland, always known as TWH, is a man who, by nearly universal account, has extraordinarily little claim to decency. A, li <laughs> for, a lifelong scapegrace, he was generally held in low esteem by his literary contemporaries. Even obituaries pulled no punches, with one describing him as a rasping satirist, Fleet Street hack, and his own worst enemy. He was, <laughs> it gets worse. Um, he was, though, prolific, publishing over 40 works of prose, fiction, and poetry as well as literary criticism, and he served as editor or <coughs> contributing writer for a range of important fin siècle and early 20th century papers, including Vanity Fair, he edited the English Review, and uh, was associate editor and then later proprietor of the Academy, a role in which uh, these roles brought him into contact and often battle with many of the, uh, the literati of his day. To his champions, his few champions, Crosland's views were simply out of his own time, and posterity was sure to recognize his rightful genius. In his sycophantic biography, which remains the only biographical work to date on Crosland, Sorley Brown argues, this is a long quote, what we can really blame Fleet Street for is its hypocrisy and uncharity towards one whose genius was immeasurably greater than those who used it for their own profit while he lived. In 50 years' time, no one will care a straw about these dishonest press profiteers of Fleet Street, whose huge monopoly is the disgrace of London journalism, nor about Oscar Wilde and his posturing admirers, but if, if men are to be judged by the fruits of their genius rather than by its casual and wayward blown leaf, I think Crosland will come out far better than most of us at the greatest size. Of course, this prediction never came to pass. The quality and quantity of Crosland's genius remains undetermined. Fleet Street profiteers might have exploited him, and reports vary, as you might imagine, dramatically on that perspective. But in any case, Crosland was a notorious uh, profligate with money that he did earn, and an inveterate gambler who claimed to have a system to beat the bank. More than 50 years later, the reputation of Oscar Wilde and his posturing admirers only continues to increase, and Crosland, meanwhile, has faded almost entirely from the collective memory. 
His works are not read, he has no entry in the DNB, and he earns only minor passing notice in literary scholarship on the figures in the wild circle with whom he came into contact. Born in Leeds, he began contributing verse to newspapers when he was still in his teens, moving eventually onto a piecemeal journalism career. Um, and when he was in his early 20s, he was the editor of the Hunslet and Holbeck News, where he entered his first libel action, one of many to come. And he had a brief stint in the classroom and then recommitted himself to writing and moved to London for the duration of his career. His earliest literary output, I think this is significant, seems to be quite in tune with the then still strong aesthetic tradition. His earliest volume of poetry, 1894's The Pink Book, not only mimics in its title the yellow book that debuted in the same year, but much of the verse dwells in the same uh, synesthesia and image-drenched register that the, of contemporary decadent verse, including Wilde's. And, and I'll give you just a few lines from his sonnet to John Keats to give you the sense of this. A harp of 50 silver and murmurous strings, a woodland full of wild bird minstrelsy, a sadness chaunted by a lonely sea, a void through which at intervals there rings the bell-voiced soul of all melodious things, etc. <laughs> Uh, by the turn of the century, he had abandoned any decadent sensibility and would go on to mock the very kind of poetry that he himself had written. But another thread in his writing begins to appear, that of a hardening nationalism. A 1901 book, a children's book, for Grant Richards' Dumpy Book series helpfully encapsulates this developing attitude, helpfully concentrated in his abecedarium, Little People. Each letter is represented by a nationality, so here is E for English. The English are a sturdy race, brawny of limb and red of face. They own, this is geography, much of, the, much of the land and all of the sea. That is to say, they rule the waves. They never, never will be slaves. They are brave, but do not want to fight and think themselves forever right. France is represented in the book by its pleasures. The French can cook, he says, and fence and dance and make the prettiest hats and frocks. They laugh a great deal when they dine. <laughs> if pleasure was the order for France, the Odalisque, O is for Odalisque, um, one of only three women or girls in the book, it's awful, um, <laughs> she seems to the author an occasion for sexual dalliance. Oh, pretty little Odalisque, I know you want to dance and frisk and play at hide and seek with me, and yet you know it cannot be, unless, unless, my dear, you choose to put away those curious shoes, also your coat and cap and veil, they'd hang up nicely on a nail. Um, it would be too generous, I think, to note the obvious echoes of Herrick in these lines. The nationalism, racism, and sexism evident in little people might not have been terribly outside of the norm for writers at the fin siècle, but the nationalist discourse, or rather the denigration of other nationalities, was central to his oeuvre. The reductive snapshots of little people are suggestive of the future direction of uh, nearly the entirety of his work. His first and lasting literary fame came from the 1902 publication of The Unspeakable Scot, uh, which is where I get the title of uh, my paper from, a vicious invective that had a remarkably long lifespan, persisting through multiple editions and giving rise to countless variations of his own and by others. Crossland would at various points later disclaim the piece, and his apologists invariably point out that some of his closest friends were Scots. <laughs> uh, whether or not Crossland's views were sincerely held, it is clear that they were marketable, dependably recognizing that all press was good press. Uh, he provoked the horror of critics in order to fuel sales, or it certainly did fuel sales. It's no wonder, then, that the author continued to produce similar work. And an account of his further publications reads like a hit list of his subjects of hate speech. You can read those on your own. Uh, Pop Goes the, Le the Weasel, the last one, coming quite late in 1924, the year of his death, uh, sees him return to the subject of his initial success, bashing Scotland. 
Suffice it to say that these works are as bad as you might imagine them to be. Um, but Nation was not the only characteristic that came in for scrutiny. If his series of nation-hating invective um, establishes English bona fides, his foray into gender politics seems geared to establish his hyper-masculinity. In The Lord of Creation, a work that's a pan to men and not God, and it follows its kind of response to his equally sexist tome, uh, The Lovely Women, here he frames his critique in terms of the, the context of English women's increasing agency at, at the turn of the century. He represents man as cowed, especially in the domestic space. Abroad, we are told, quote, he struts, at home he slinks. Abroad, he is very wise. At home, he is a little child. This state of affairs has, in Croslin's view, led to a wholesale degradation of the British male. It is because men are, quote, grossly infatuated with the queen of the earth that he is steadfastly setting himself to be like her, end quote, and the result is an uncomfortable and unfortunate effeminacy. Quote, I would give half the men of the day petticoats in presence of chocolate. They should wear fringes and write anonymous letters. They should lace tightly and eat cake, he writes. It is impossible to gauge the degree to which the wild trials had impacted Crosland's views. But what is clear is that by 1905, he had established himself as a vocal antagonist of what he regarded as the cult of wild, priming him, Crosland, for a relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas uh, that he cultivated over the following decade. Douglas took over ownership of the Academy in 1907, and at the time, Crosland was serving as assistant editor, so he had daily interactions with Douglas, uh, who by this point was ostensibly trying to separate himself from Wilde's legacy, though his frequent visits to court kept his name linked with Wilde's. Indeed, the courtroom proved to provide as profound a link in the Crosland-Douglas relationship as the press office. <coughs> In Douglas's revisionist autobiography of 1931, he portrays Croslin as a zealous fan who ingratiated himself by flattering Douglas's poetry. Um, but it's also true that that friendship was forged um, via Croslin's feelings towards Wilde, as we'll see. Um, that antipathy toward Wilde was made clear in his invective, The First Stone, a self-published poem composed as a kind of response to the publication of De Profundis and released around Christmas 1912. In 1905, you likely all recall, Robert Ross, Wilde's literary executor, had published the first iteration of Wilde's um, extended letter written in the final months of his sentence at Reading Jail. That expurgated version left out Douglas almost entirely, but also left out much that, in Crosland's view, would counteract the sincere, repentant figure of Wilde that emerged from Ross, Ross's version. Additional content from Wilde's letter appeared in Arthur Ransom's 1912 Oscar Wilde, A Critical Study. And Douglas, supported by Croslin, sued Ransom for libel. He lost, uh, as he almost always would, but in the course of the trial, the expurgated letter was introduced into evidence. And these events prompted Douglas's 1914 book, Oscar Wilde and Myself, for which Croslin served as ghostwriter. And, and later, Douglas would blame the entirety of uh, that, um, that book on Crosland. Um, it was viewed as a corrective to ransom studies, so trying to reset the record straight. Before that point, though, Crosland sought to, to strike back against um, uh, something, either, either Wilde or the cult of Wilde or Wilde's followers, um, or the very idea that um, a homosexual could be regarded as potentially viable literary hero. In any case, he took to the medium that he knew best, and that was invective. 
Crossland insisted that the expurgated sections of De Profundis, which the public would not be able to access until after his own lifetime, were, quote, sufficiently discreditable to render the whole ignominious, I can never say that word, since copyright laws prevented him from printing the expurgated versions of the original, he produces this 30-page privately printed free verse poem uh, where he purported to correct public regard by presenting to the readers not the actual expurgated sections, which he couldn't, but a verse approximation. Even here, his logic seems to be overwhelmed by vitriol. He writes, quote, a blacker, fiercer, falser, craftier, more groveling, or more abominable piece of writing never fell from mortal pen. I may be held shameful, it may be held shameful in me that I rake it up at all. I admit that in ordinary circumstances, common decency would have prevented me. Wild is dead, let his crowning devilry die with him. Yes, Mr. Robert Ross, I say devilry, end quote. To give you a sense of his tone, uh, just a few of the opening lines addressed to Wilde. Thou, the complete mountebank, the scented posture, the flabby Pharisee, the king of life, the lord of language with the bad teeth. Crossland characterizes Wilde's misery in jail as the pathetic <coughs> wailings of a hypocrite, but along the way he frames Wilde's interest in continental objects as a sign of decadent excess that aligns with Wilde's personal failings, sexual or otherwise. The luscious autumn and crinkled Sicilian vine leaves, the wonderful pâtés procured directly from Strasbourg, the Perrier Jouet, the Dagon in 1880. These lines are, are almost a direct mimic of, of De Profundis, uh, but whereas in De Profundis, this is while giving um, an account of the, the dinners that he would stage for, for Douglas at the Savoy and at Willis's, in the re-rendering, Croslin strips the location entirely. So we don't know that these are British dinners being held. It's just, uh, it's just the, the impression of foreignness by the goods that, that remains. Moreover, Croslin invokes the continent as a bastion of escape from the laws that imprisoned and the social mores that circumscribed Wilde's behavior in England. Behold, in the dark in dark places, they light tapers for thy picture, and range thee about with sorrowing angels, and jibe and gibber, and make swift trips to Dieppe when they think the police may call. <laughs> that means of escape, which Wilde had elected himself to forego, haunts Croslin's version of De Profundis. For love of you, my friend, out of sheer love, I indict 46,000 words of livid, chattering rage, hate and malice and spite, let down with piety, humility, and tears. And I do this inasmuch as you who laughed at me are happy and at large in Paris, at Naples, or Rome, in golden Sicily, or where the Cyprian palms climb from the sea to the sun. Again, has it occurred to you that while you go free and at large, happy and indolent in Paris, at Naples, or Rome, etc., 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 I, the damp prisoner, the democritus of the jails, the lord of language and life, the symbol of my age and really suffering my terrible, terrible sentence and public obloquy because of my friendship for you. To be sure, Croslin here is aping wild, and so the repeated indications of, sun of the sun-drenched Mediterranean as a bastion for physical and culinary pleasure might be understood as another bankrupt sign of Wilde's or Ross's devilry. The sneer in the remarks seems to be directed as much to the petulant jealousy that Croslin attributes to Wilde as to the idea of the continent as escape, but it is an escape that Croslin himself would soon take advantage of. Terrible. Croslin had prefaced the first stone by acknowledging that he was in an upstream battle, given that public regard towards Wilde was increasingly positive. 
But as ever, he cast his position as one of moral fortitude. This is Croslin. I shall be told to remember that Wilde was a man of genius and that he is dead. In view of what is happening under our noses, I refuse to forget that he is fearfully alive, that his genius belonged essentially to the stews, and that he spent his last literary strength on the deliberate production of a work which is disgraceful to humanity." End quote. If there was any reason or any question that Croslin's crusade transgressed the moral boundaries that he claimed to uphold, the question was answered in 1914 when he and Douglas were brought up on charges of criminal libel and conspiracy, stemming from their dealings with the young prostitute Charles Garrett. They paid Garrett and his family on the grounds that Garrett would complain to the police that Robert Ross had patronized his services. According to the arraignment, Croslin and Ross, sorry, that's Croslin and Douglas, were said to have acted, quote, to prevent the course of justice, falsely to charge Robert Baldwin Ross, Ross with a criminal offense, to suborn Charles Garrett to commit perjury, and to suborn perjury from Mrs. Garrett, that's his mother. On the stand, Croslin's was a tour de force performance. He maintained that he had every right to, quote, express his opinion as a member of the community against the pseudo-canonization of Wilde, unquote. It was, after all, British law that sentenced Wilde to two years hard labor, and it was the cosmopolitan literary scene that was recuperating his works and his reputation. Perhaps imagining that they had a willing partner in the guise of these draconian laws, Croslin and Douglas sought to engage the English courts to embarrass or imprison Ross. Yet in fact, press coverage was far more damning of Croslin than it was of Ross, bringing into public view evidence of Croslin's irrational antipathy towards Wilde and his own hypocrisy on sexual policing. And this was because his own extramarital dalliances and continental travel that facilitated those dalliances uh, were brought up as evidence against him, against Croslin. Recourse to the continent seemed to um, evade judgmental eyes or punishment at the hands of the English courts was a tactic that Croslin had been deeply critical of, as we've seen in the first stone, but one that both he and Douglas nonetheless took advantage of. Douglas, I should note, escaped this entire prosecution because he was in Boulogne, where he had fleed to, um, and where subsequently at his own expense he paid for Croslin to visit him repeatedly to give him updates on the prosecution. Croslin had, in the months prior to the trial, applied to the Royal Literary Fund for financial relief, claiming destitution, and was given a grant of 75 pounds. The normally confidential dealings of this venerable British institution were, some of its members thought, dragged into the mud when, in the trial preliminaries, Croslin apparently cited that grant as evidence of his high regard among the literary world, sparking outrage among some RLF members. Having introduced the grant into the public record, he opened himself up to questioning about its use. Other RLF members were uh, further scandalized to learn, thanks to very public reporting on this very public case, that just weeks after receiving the grant, the supposedly destitute Croslin absconded to the south of France with his mistress. <laughs> If Croslin had hoped to compel Ross to justify his sexual activity on the witness stand, uh, the opposite, in fact, occurred. This is from the Times. In reply to further questions, the witness said that he and his wife had lived on terms of affection for nearly 20 years, and but for a legal matter, would still be he would still be living with her. Who is Mrs. Parnell, the tenant of the flat in which I live? In a case like this, a man need not be ashamed to say that he has a mistress. The witness admitted that in March last, he took his mistress for a tour of the south of France. He applied to the Royal Literary Fund as he was hard up and ill, asked for a grant, and received 75 pounds. You obtained a grant on the ground of destitution. I do not know about destitution. I had no money. Did you go to Monte Carlo, having got that, and take this woman with you? 
you need not talk about this woman as if it were something terrible. Another account <coughs> glosses his response more fully. When, quote, counsel asked who was the lady at the defendant's flat who had been mentioned in the case, defendant replied that in such a case as they were discussing, a man might even be proud of his relations with the other sex. Speaking more excitedly, he proceeded, if you cannot get a conviction, you want to ruin me outright. My wife might take divorce proceedings against me. What do you care? This is wanton mischief, end quote. This suggestion that Croslin's battle was not against Ross, but against the devilry of Wilde's tendencies is implicit in this response. He should be proud to be a heterosexual, to be sleeping with another woman, as he says. Elsewhere in the trial, Croslin's intense homophobia forced some interesting machinations from the court. Under examination, Croslin was asked if he had dinner with Garrett, the young man that they paid to uh, charge Ross with indecent acts. And in the questioning, the prosecutor phrased this. Uh, he asked, um, or he referred to Garrett as Croslin's dinner companion. Was he your dinner companion? Uh, papers reported that Croslin, quote, speaking in tones of considerable excitement, said, if you talk to me like that, I will rattle you quick. You have no right to make suggestions to me. I am as big a master of sneers and jeers as you are. You keep your sneers to yourself, thumbing the box with his fist. Defendant said he would not answer any more questions until counsel withdrew the remark, end quote. When his own lawyer tried to compel him to answer, did you have dinner with Garrett? Croslin insisted that the question was an impudent sneer and that he would, quote, answer the questions if the prosecutor will say that this man was not my dinner companion in any evil sense, end quote. The court was not amused, but suggested that Croslin's true colors were in fact on display via this exchange. And he, uh, Croslin clung to these, his ostensible principles, to the end. The memorial plaque on the site of his birthplace in Leeds reads poet and Englishman, the same epitaph that graces his tombstone. It was, as his biographer Brown wrote, written by Croslin himself on his deathbed. He's a complex figure that likely deserves more scholarly attention than he has received, and certainly more comprehensive attention than I'm willing or able to give him today. I'll conclude <laughs> simply by suggesting that in his histrionic insistence on xenophobia, in his insistent reinscription of the nation and his seeming belief that by asserting his narrow views, he could stave off the potential of sexual dissonance, Croslin consolidated, reinforced, and distilled the very idea that cosmopolitanism was the antidote to people like himself, an ideology like his own. Thank you.